episode 18 of the Simul Podcast. It's Super Bowl 57 this weekend, and the players for both squads are doing their best to be ready for the big game. Like with many sports, there's always the unfortunate risk of injury. But elite-level athletes are followed throughout their careers by highly trained medical staff dedicated to monitoring them, treating their injuries, and helping these players reach the best conditions they can be in to achieve their goals. My name is Stephen Jurgian. I'm a researcher at Johns Hopkins, and in this episode, I spoke to Dr. Andrew Kosgaria, an orthopedic surgeon at Johns Hopkins Hospital and the current head team physician for the Johns Hopkins Athletics Department. Dr. Kosgaria has previously been the chief of the Division of Sports Medicine at Johns Hopkins, as well as team physician for the Baltimore Orioles baseball team, so he has decades of experience treating injuries in professional and collegiate-level athletes. I was excited to speak to him about his role as head team physician, and get his insights on the treatment of sports injuries at the highest levels. So whether you're in the medical field or just really into sports, I hope you'll enjoy this episode. Okay, so welcome uh, onto the podcast, Dr. Kosgaria. Thanks for uh, joining joining me today. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. So you're a professor of orthopedic surgery at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, and I may have mentioned when we spoke before, one of the main things we try to do on every episode of this podcast is to break down scientific terms. So with that in mind, I'll start off with what I hope is a nice, easy question for you. But what is orthopedics? Uh, orthopedics is a subspecialty in medicine. It, it's really technically orthopedic surgery. Um, so there are generally two types of Broadly speaking, specialties, there are surgical subspecialties and there are non-surgical. So internal medicine is the big, you know, non-surgical subspecialty. And general surgery uh, would be the big surgical uh, specialty. And orthopedic surgery um, is surgery involving the joints for the most part. And that includes things like hand and spine and what I do, sports medicine. Um, most of what we do doesn't require surgery, but our training is as surgeons. Okay, that's great. And one thing I've always wondered about is the origin of the word orthopedics. And a search I did before we started our conversation took me to the Department of Orthopedic Surgery webpage of the Sydney Kimmel Medical College, where I believe you went to medical school. And I learned there that the term orthopedics was coined back in 1741, with orthos being the Greek word for straight, and the peed part coming from the word for child because of the idea back then that treating body development in children was the best way to prevent problems in adults. Well, a lot of what we do is trying to stabilize broken bones so that they can heal straight. So it makes sense. Orthopedics, um, straight child, um, put a cast on a broken bone, sometimes it requires a reduction, meaning that you take the bent bone and you straighten it out. You sort of physically, manually straighten it out. That's what a reduction is. And then you stabilize it with usually an external cast to give it a chance to heal. By the way, just to share with the audience, broken bone is the same as fractured bone is the same as cracked bone. We're talking about the same thing. That's a common misconception. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. So although orthopedics isn't necessarily to do with children, the specialty that you've pursued in your career is sports injuries. So 
with that, you're working with relatively young people and athletes a lot of the time because as well as previously being the chief of the division of sports medicine at Johns Hopkins, you're now the head team physician for the Department of Athletics at the university. That's right. I'm the head team physician, uh, previously the director of the division of sports medicine. Going back to the subspecialty of sports medicine, um, as an orthopedic surgeon, during our five or six years of training, we all learn or train in a variety of different subspecialties like joint replacement, hand surgery, spine. There's a separate subspecialty of pediatric orthopedics, and there are things like sports medicine. Uh, so we all learn the basics. Then we go on to additional training and can do an additional year of training, a fellowship. Uh, and that's where you devote all of your time to one sort of concentrated area like sports medicine, which is what I did. And then I've chosen to practice sports medicine for my entire career since I finished my training 30 years ago or so. Uh, so sports medicine involves treatment of sports patients of all ages, from the very youngest athletes to the very oldest. Um, and orthopedics in general um, also includes all ages, including our, our uh, expanding geriatric population. And so I imagine one of the draws of sports medicine came from your background because you've described yourself in the past as coming from a family of athletes as well as being a keen athlete yourself. Do you feel that your own experiences as an athlete have helped you through your career in sports medicine to understand what your patients are going through? Yeah, I think so. I, I think understanding the unique needs of uh, individuals who care very, very much about something like sports, um, understanding that mentality is really important. There's a huge difference uh in athletes of different levels of competition um, and different sports. So it, you really do need to get to try to understand the unique aspects of each sport. You need to be able to uh, understand the needs of those individuals, what their goals are. It's important to understand the different positions that they play. For example, on a baseball team, you know, what, what becomes a huge problem for a pitcher is completely different than, say, a first baseman. And knowing um, what role they play uh, helps you determine um, how important a certain functional problem is and how to address it. Um, that's also really important to understand the different la uh, layers, the different, excuse me, levels of competition, you know, whether they're a high school athlete, a college athlete, a professional athlete, or a senior athlete, master's level. Um, so I think having been through all of those different sort of levels myself um, and growing up with athletes and hanging out with athletes is a little bit of an advantage, um, but it's still really important to to understand uh, the uniqueness of each different sport and and uh, what they are looking for, what those patients are looking for when they come to the office. Okay, so getting a bit more into the science here, a lot of your work is focused on two joints in the body in particular, the shoulder and the knee. So I want to start with the shoulder, which I imagine is a very heavily used joint in sports, whether it's a a physical contact sport like football or something with lots of repetitive motion of the arms, like swimming. 
So could you tell us a bit more about what different kinds of shoulder injuries you might see depending on the sport or how um, the shoulder joint is being used? Yeah, that's a great way to think of, quote, injuries, unquote, in general. Um, the majority are overuse injuries related to repetitive use and overuse. Uh, the more dramatic injuries are the traumatic injuries, uh, a direct blow, a fracture of, say, the humerus, that long upper arm bone, a dislocation where the ball of the humerus gets knocked out of the socket of the shoulder joint. By the way, a dislocation is different than a separation. A part, a, a, a not well-known part of the shoulder joint is the acromioclavicular joint. The acromioclavicular joint is where the clavicle or the collarbone attaches to the rest of the shoulder bone. It's on the top of the shoulder. So, say, football players or hockey players that run into the wall of the rink or hit the ground hard on the top of their shoulder, they suffer a separation. That's a traumatic separation of the acromioclavicular joint or AC joint. And that's different than a dislocation where the ball gets knocked out of the socket. So those are fairly common traumatic shoulder injuries in contact sports. Um, you mentioned swimming. Swimming, much more common to get an overuse injury. Think about how many times the arm is rotated in swimming just one lap. And think about swimmers who are training multiple miles a day, day after day, most, the vast majority of days in a given year. And eventually the, structure, the structures either wear out or um, are exposed to excessive forces that lead to inflammation and wear and tear. And that's, that's the other category of injury. Um, so those are the, the most common things that people come into the office um, worried about, concerned about how it, you know, this is affecting the quality of my life. I can't do what I want to do. And in some cases, it's it's a career. Either they're a professional athlete or perhaps they're a, a scholarship level college athlete. Um, or it might be uh, it's a plumber who can't use his arm to, you know, to, to do his job. But more often, it's something that's not uh, their career, but something they really enjoy doing. Um, it's a sport. Um, either they're going to school on a scholarship or they're in a Division three program where they just do it for the love of the sport. But let's not forget how important sports are to, um, say, our mental health. In so many cases, yes, we enjoy playing that sport. Yes, we enjoy going for a long run, the adrenaline rush. But life is complicated, and there's so many other stresses in our life, and and we really need an outlet outside of just our stressful occupations and all of the the other things going on in our lives. And and we benefit so much uh, emotionally, physiologically, but emotionally and mentally from being able to go for a long bike ride or go for a long run or a long swim. And so when you can't do that anymore because of either an acute injury or more likely an overuse injury, uh, it, it's it's a big deal. It's a big problem. Um, and that's very often the primary problem that patients are experiencing when they come into the office. I'm aware of the, the sort of mental health and uh, physical health benefits of playing sport because I'm a big uh, soccer player or the, the other kind of football. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, I spent most of my life in the UK, if you couldn't tell from the accent. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> um, But really, so any sport that involves uh, running as well is going to place a lot of demands on the knee. And, um, you know, I have enough of a biology background to remember that the knee is quite a different type of joint to the shoulder joint. So can you tell us a bit more about what's going at the knee joint? Um, say, say, I don't know if this is too broad, when, when someone's running forwards, uh, you know, to try and score a touchdown during a football game, um, what kind of biomechanics is the knee joint experiencing? Yeah, sure. So let me back up just a little bit. As a sports medicine specialist, probably as, as an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine specialist, the, the joint we see the most frequently is the knee. It's the highest, uh, most common issue. Um, we also see a lot of shoulder problems. Um, I take care of elbow injuries, ankle injuries. So it's it's not just a joint, but it's uh, the joints that are commonly affected by sports-type activities. It also includes bones and muscles and tendons, too. Uh, of course, the, the big one that you hear the, the most about is, is anterocruciate ligament tears in the knee. So ACL, yeah, the dreaded ACL. Yeah, everybody knows about the ACL. Um, what sort of forces um, are generated in the knee? Well, um, soccer, especially women's soccer, is the most dangerous sport of all of the common sports, um, the single most dangerous when it comes to ACL injuries. When when studies are done to look at the incidence of ACL tears in the different um, NCAA uh, sponsored sports, men and women, uh, 20, 30 different sports. Number one is women's soccer ACL tears, um, followed by men's football. In, for women's soccer, it's, it's almost always a non-contact injury, whereas in football, it may be non-contact, the wide receiver going out, cutting, tearing their ACL, or it could be contact, you know, a, a lineman getting hit from the side or a running back getting tackled. But getting back to, to what are the biomechanics, so picture that female soccer player uh, defending somebody coming at her with the ball, not knowing what direction to go in, and trying to keep an eye on the, on the athlete, trying to keep an eye on the ball, and having that split second to make the decision, uh, backpedaling, cut left, cut right, and a slight misstep, um, a slight twisting injury, and pop the ACL tears. It's, you see it over and over and over again. Or somebody running down the field and um, trying not to collide with another soccer player, trying to slightly change direction so their foot hits the ground in, in a very uh, either a minor awkward fashion or a very obvious awkward fashion. The same cutting maneuver that they've done literally thousands and thousands of times in their life Something happens in the knee. The angle is slightly off. The muscles are contracting. The quadriceps muscle is contracting. It applies a force through the patellar tendon, which is attached to the, the shin bone, the tibia, pulls the tibia forward, and it's just the perfect uh, uh, combination of biomechanical factors that causes the ACL to, to tear. It exceeds that the forces exceed the tensile strength of that. Uh, little finger-sized ribbon 
appearing uh, rope-like structure that's in the center of the knee. Boom, the ACL tears. And it just happens over and over and over again. Yeah, so there's probably no way to prevent these kinds of injuries in a contact sport from ever happening. It's just part of the risk of playing a game that one loves. But I guess there might... Is there some coaching on positioning of the body in game situations or strengthening exercises, for example, to minimize the risk of these kinds of injuries? Is that something that goes on within the athletics departments at Hopkins? Absolutely. It's uh, incredibly important to do whatever you can to prevent these injuries from happening. And probably the single most important thing is, is injury prevention. In order to prevent injuries, you have to understand what causes them. So looking very, very carefully at risk factors for, say, tearing your ACL. And there are two broad categories of risk factors, um, intrinsic and extrinsic. So in intrinsic risk factors, something that you are born with, um, something that can't be changed might be um, – uh, you know, your sex, uh, male or your female, or your gender. Um, it might be um, uh, the size of the space or the notch inside your knee where the ACL is. And you can measure notch size, you can measure the size of the ACL, and you can correlate the risk of tearing your ACL with anatomic features that you have no control over. Say, exa- for example, the angle between your femur and your tibia, your shin bone and your thigh bone. There's a correlation between those things, and you you can't change that. But there are modifiable extrinsic risk factors that you can change. For example, um, how strong are you? What kind of shape are you in? What are the field conditions like? How about the shoes that you're wearing? How long are the spikes? Um, there are uh strategies for landing from a jump um, that are safer or more dangerous when it comes to uh, uh, tearing your ACL. So you can train in um, in, in safer uh, strategies, and that has to do with how the uh, muscles contract and dynamically stabilize your knee joint when you land from a jump or when you stop and, and make a quick change in direction. Um, it's, it's very complicated, um, but there's stronger and stronger evidence to show that, that you can prevent many ACL tears. There are specific injury prevention programs uh, that have been studied closely, particularly in female soccer players, but also basketball players and volleyball players. And you can um, you can teach an athlete to land from a jump with their knees in a more bent position, so squatting down further, and with the knees straighter, pointing more straight forward instead of knock knee pointing in. So the more dangerous landing position is knees pointing in more upright. And the safer way to land from a layup, for example, is with the knees pointing straight forward, not knock kneed, and in a more bent position. Those uh, strategies can and, and should be and are taught. So they're taught um, uh, by 
by coaches um, as part of uh, preseason training. Um, we have strength and conditioning coaches in particular. Uh, I, so I'm the head team physician at Hopkins, and we've got uh, 25 or so varsity sports, and we've got over 600 uh, varsity athletes. And let me put a little plug in for Hopkins Athletics here. We think of Johns Hopkins as being this incredible institution, you know, great undergraduate, top 10 in the in the world, undergraduate, great, great graduate programs, fantastic uh, medical school and, and hospital and all that. But I bet you didn't know that Johns Hopkins has the number one athletic program, D3 athletic program in the country out of over 400 programs. A big part of having a successful athletic department is having coaches that are committed not only to success in terms of winning games, but really to the health of their athletes. And uh, we have a phenomenal athletic department, you know, led by our athletic director, but also by our coaches. And many of our coaches uh, traditionally have been around for a long time and are very successful. Um, our baseball coach, for example, Bob, uh, Bob Babb has been around for decades and is in the, Baseball Hall of Fame, one of the most successful, most loved baseball coaches in the country. Um, and, and for many, many years, we've had a, a tradition of coaches that are loved by their athletes because they pay a lot of attention to their athletes. They care about their health. They care about winning, but the kids come first. A big part of that, though, is, is figuring out how to protect them from injury and um, using um, every resource available and, and hiring uh, um, uh, experienced and well-educated strength and conditioning coaches to teach injury prevention uh, strategies to the athletes preseason and during the season, teaching them as a team, but then also identifying individual athletes that demonstrate patterns that put them at a higher risk. So recognizing that and then intervening and, and treating each one of them individually. And that's, of course, working with the athletic trainers um, who are in charge of monitoring practices, intervening when there's a, a, an injury present, performing you know, maintenance rehabilitation, uh, performing rehab after an injury occurs or after surgery. Um, the athletic trainers are really the key to these kids staying healthy um, and, and hopefully staying out of the operating room and, and having successful long uh, careers. Um, so going back to the athletic department, I think our, our athletic department is so successful because the commitment of hiring the individuals, the coaches, the athletic trainers, the strength and conditioning coaches, the sports psychologists, the nutritionists, you know, everyone uh, who's part of that team that, that knows how to, from the very beginning, prevent the injuries from happening. Well, it's good news because it sounds like at least something can be done from the training side to control some of these, what you call the extrinsic factors and reduce the risk of uh, injuries. And I imagine these are all things that the Johns Hopkins lacrosse teams are working on in their training right now with their Division One season starting very soon. So you hinted at this in your in your answer to my previous question, but what I wanted to ask was for these big games coming up, are you or a member of the physician team present at the games alongside the trainers and staff? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Stephen, thanks for bringing up the, the D1 because I hadn't mentioned that. We, we're one of uh, a handful of 
uh, colleges, universities in the United States that has a hybrid uh, setup with athletics. We have both D3 and D1 programs. So I, and we were grandfathered in years ago when this system of D1, 2, and 3 was formalized. And we've always had a tradition of lacrosse at, at Hopkins, always have and always will. And so we have a powerhouse D1 uh, men's and women's lacrosse programs. The rest of our sports are T3. Um, we, um, we are always present for every uh, men's and women's home lacrosse game. Um, the commitment. So uh, I, I'm the head team physician. Uh, I'm a, um, a professor in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Johns Hopkins. Our department, Department of Orthopedic Surgery, uh, was hired by the Department of Athletics to provide care for uh, the athletes, the D3, the D1, the varsity athletes. So what they've asked us to do and, and what we do is provide game day coverage. Um, we're on the on the field before, during, and after the game, and training room coverage. Um, one of us is in the in the training room addressing any kind of uh, injury or need. Uh, virtually every day. And then we're also on call available every day of the year uh, for anything that comes up. Um, the athletic department has determined, um, and we you know, certainly agree, that, that there are specific sports that are higher risk. High risk meaning the chance of a very serious injury occurring that needs immediate attention. And so for those sports, uh, contact sports like football and lacrosse, and wrestling, one of us is always there, present during the competition. Um, there's always an athletic trainer available at all games and virtually all practices. And athletic trainers are like the primary care physicians and the EMTs all wrapped up in one. They're there for chronic problems. They're there uh, to address emergencies. Um, and they function under our our medical licenses. So, um when we're when I'm covering a game or, or one of the rest of the team, and, and there are uh, five team physicians right now, and, and we rotate through and, and share the coverage duties and responsibilities, and we travel uh, throughout the country with the lacrosse team, for example. Um, um, but when when we're covering a game, we're functioning um, as a team. Um, we as the medical care team. Um, are functioning to take care of the lacrosse team. And there's uh, one or two or three athletic trainers there. And then there's one or two, sometimes three team physicians there. And we each have our jobs and responsibilities. The, the key people are the athletic trainers. They're the ones that identify a problem, do the initial assessment, um, and, and then get us involved. Um, obviously, if I see something catastrophic happening, I immediately intervene. But um, anything less than, than uh, an obvious emergency, I defer to the uh, initial evaluation and the expertise and the experience of, of our athletic trainers. Um, they come to me um, if they need something, if they're looking for advice, um, and ultimately any, any decision that they make, um, we make together, and I'm responsible for under my medical license. Okay, absolutely, that close interaction between physicians, the athletics trainers, and the rest of the staff must be super important for getting rapid assessments if a player lands awkwardly, for example. So if there is a potential injury and that initial assessment gets made, 
what kind of scenarios could play out after that point uh, until the player is back playing again? Well, if, if we're talking about sort of a game time uh, in-game injury, um, the, the initial assessment, you know, is made on the field. Uh, if the player can easily come off of the field, then we bring them to the sideline or maybe into the training room to do a more thorough investigation. And that investigation would involve getting uh, a description of what happened from the athlete, if they know, if they remember, from an athletic trainer, if they saw the injury happening or one of the other players, and then a physical examination to try to determine the serious nature of, of the, the seriousness of the injury. Um, we get x-rays if necessary. Um, and then ultimately, if it's a, a knee sprain, a generic knee sprain, we may have them do a sideline functional progression, which means have them first walk. And if they can walk without a limp, have them jog a little bit, uh, maybe have them sprint and cut. And if uh, they appear to be functioning well, they're comfortable, they seem to be safe, and I don't identify any structural limitation, allow them to try to go back on the field. If it's a more serious thing, like uh, they, they, they get up and start shaking their head and maybe they appear to be a little unsteady, we immediately flag it as a concussion. And with the current concussion protocols, they're out. There's no consideration of going back into the game, bring them to the sidelines, do an initial neurologic evaluation, get them into a quiet place in the training room, begin the, the uh, concussion protocol. I should mention here that um, it's not just orthopedic surgeons who are the physicians on the sidelines. I should clarify that. I work closely with my non-surgical colleagues um, in, in orthopedic surgery, primary care sports medicine, and in physical medicine and rehabilitation, another department at Johns Hopkins. Uh, very well-trained, uh, qualified, skilled non-surgeons who specialize in sports medicine. So they know concussion care extremely well. They know about heart issues, irregular heartbeats and murmurs, and, and, and they know about kidney problems and liver disease. And, and they're the, the other half of the team of physicians that, that take care of sports injuries. Um, there is a, I'm the head team physician. We, we have, um, a medical director, Alexis Koslick. She's a, an MD. She's in the physical medicine rehabilitation department and, and we're partners. And she, I defer to her for medical things and she defers to me for surgical things and, and we work together. Okay. And I'm sure a lot of this also applies to what goes on with professional athletes and you have some experience working with them in the past. So I wonder just in general what that experience was like for you and whether there are any differences in the way you would approach treatment within the professional sports environment as opposed to with uh, collegiate-level athletes or with the general population? Yes, taking care of professional athletes um, is it's more challenging. Uh, it's more challenging because um, these individuals, professional athletes, have, have chosen um, to commit their, uh, their lives, um, their ability to support their families, their ability to fund their retirement through um, uh, athletics. And because of that, they've chosen to take risks and to um, put their body through um, stress that, that, uh, and risk that, that's at a higher level than 
than you know most college athletes. Um, additionally, they, they oftentimes become older, so uh, we're not necessarily dealing with 18 to 20 year olds all the time. They may be 25, 30, 35, and even older. Um, so they're they're dealing with um, uh, even more overuse injuries. They're not only the you know the traumatic injuries, but the overuse injuries become even more of an issue. Then there become complicating factors like um, contracts and when does their contract end and um, uh, how do they want to go forward with this injury that may or may not uh, um, require them to take time off or miss the end of the season um, and and how does that play into their their next contract. Um, I, I was a team physician for the Baltimore Orioles from about 2000 to about 2010, and it was a tremendous experience, uh, tremendous in um, being able to uh, take care of some incredibly talented and, and motivated athletes, some really genuinely good people, not only athletes, but, but human beings, um, but saw firsthand how difficult it is uh, to be successful for a long period of time at the highest level of of their sport. And baseball is unique in a lot of ways. Um, the majority, the vast majority of the injuries aren't happening in, during a game. The vast majority are overuse injuries. You have those occasional dramatic hit by pitch or, uh, you know, hurt your knee running the bases. But, the you know, most of the time it's just day after day after day of, putting stress on that shoulder or that knee or whatever. Uh, so I, I think the key to being successful is trying to understand, um, again, getting back to the basics, the unique needs of that athlete, what position they play, how old they are, uh, um, where they are in their career, um, what their next contract situation is. Um, and it's a little analogous to college athletes. You know, a, a freshman with a given injury, um, you may treat differently than that senior that's going into their last year uh, of the sport that they participated in in their whole life. Yes, they're at Hopkins for, for academics. And yes, that's their priority. But that 21-year-old has been playing lacrosse since he was, since the first little fiddlestick was put in his hand at age three. And he grew up in Maryland, and it's been a huge part of his life for the last 18 years. And he's coming, you know, up to the end of his career, and he wants to play, you know, his last year of eligibility, he wants to play his senior year. So decisions about how to treat that injury really need to depend on what the injury is, what position they play, um, and what their wishes are. And then it's on me to help them make that decision, to share risks, to talk about long-term consequences, um, to give advice, but ultimately use my judgment, is it safe or not, and how can I help that athlete achieve what's so important to them um, and has been so important. Let me also point out that these sort of over, overuse injuries and, and the type of thing that you know we've seen for a long time in professional athletes you know, we're seeing more and more of that in college and even high school athletes. The idea of super specializing at a young age, picking one sport and participating in that sport year round um, has 
has really um, accelerated, you know, the, the wear and tear damage that we're seeing. You know, decades ago when I was growing up, um, we played as kids. We played three sports, and even in high school, it was common to play three sports, sort of the traditional, um, you know, three sports: uh, football, basketball, and baseball, for example. Um, that's changed, and you don't see three-sport high school athletes nearly as commonly now, and you certainly rarely see it in college. More and more, it's it's at a very young age you're picking one sport, um, whether it's baseball or lacrosse or swimming. Um, you become specialized and therefore more prone to, to overuse in that one specific sport rather than sort of spreading around the wear and tear on the different joints based on what sport you're participating in that season. Okay, yeah. So, um, and as we're getting near to the end of our time, that kind of brings me to, to one of my questions, which was, um, I mean, how has, has this sort of super specialization of an early age, uh, contributed to changes in the sports medicine and treatment that's applied over, sort of over the course of your career? Have you seen changes in how that works? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's made us more busy. Yeah. We're, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing kids at younger and younger ages who have injuries that we used to only see in, in, you know, professional and college athletes. A classic example is the, the ulnar collateral ligament tear, the, that ligament on the inside of the elbow, the Tommy John injury in, in baseball pitchers. And it used to be unheard of to see it in, you know, high school, yet let alone uh, middle school. And unfortunately, we're seeing it all the time. So, what does that mean? Well, recognizing that those injuries that we only used to see in older athletes, we're seeing in younger and younger athletes. So with the importance of educating athletes, their parents in particular, coaches, uh, trying to enforce things like pitch counts to limit the number of times they throw a ball in a given season, talking about only playing on one baseball team at a time. I mean, imagine that, only playing on one team at a time um, and taking time off. For baseball, it would you know, be over the winter, making sure there's a mandatory period of time when you're not throwing that that baseball, because probably there are only a certain number of pitches or throws that your body can handle. You, now you can modify that by being smart about how you do it, but you know our bodies um, can wear out. We don't take care of them, and and we just you know. So it it what what's the difference? We're more aware of it. Uh, we're, we're trying to educate our, our patients and their parents and their coaches and trying to, to decrease the chance of these things happening. And going forward in the next five to 10 years, do you see that trend just kind of continuing or are there any other ways you see sports medicine evolving? Yeah, I, I think, um, as a, as a sports medicine medical professional, um, recognizing the trends and, and working hard to educate, uh, patients, parents, coaches, um, is probably the single most important thing. You do need to get, you know, rules to change. So we do need to, uh, interact with sports organizations and we do. So we have team physicians organizations that we interact with national youth and collegiate uh, sports organizations to try to change rules like, you know, limiting, uh, headers and limiting the, the number of, um, of contacts, say during spring football. 
and and forcing them to take their helmets off and not put shoulder pads on so they're non-contact. So um, uh, mandating decreased um, opportunities for injury and um, and you, you can't prevent all of that from happening because you know it's pretty hard to say you can only do x number of bench presses you know and and there's plenty of opportunity for highly motivated athletes to go off on their own and find ways to continue to work out you know we're kind of a victim of our own success here because by fixing kids up and getting them back out on the field it gives them more opportunity to hurt themselves um, by paying our professional athletes so much and, and recognizing them and, uh, and and making them in many ways, you know, famous, our heroes, um, we're motivating, you know, the next generation to aspire to that. So we got to keep it all in perspective and, and we have to work with each patient, but also work, you know, at a, at a national level to, to um, try to prevent more injuries from happening. Yeah, and I'm sure that's it's yeah it's difficult to do um, with the, the the fine margins at these very competitive levels. It's easy for players to push themselves, you know, beyond beyond the limits and practicing and playing. But um, these sort of mandated procedures to help give them a chance to avoid certain injuries is part of the part of the duty of care, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. That's a good way of putting it. The duty of care. Well, yeah, Dr. Kozgaria, thank you. Uh, very much. I've definitely learned a lot from our conversation today, and I'm sure our listeners will too. And I think I'll be watching the uh, the NFL playoffs with a, a a new perspective after this uh, conversation. Um, it's been an been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Well, thanks, Stephen. I enjoyed talking with you too. Sadly, it turned out to be another disappointing NFL campaign for the Baltimore Ravens. But that was an enlightening conversation with my guest, Dr. Andrew Kozgaria. He explained to me how the most common types of sports injuries are actually overuse injuries from repetitive actions, and how his own experience as an athlete helps him to better engage with the goals and needs of each patient. He also highlighted the actions that athletes can take to reduce the extrinsic risk of injuries, like the infamous ACL tear, such as using the right footwear, learning the best techniques for landing from jumps, and engaging in strength and conditioning training. Dr. Kozgaria also described the unique privileges and challenges of working with professional athletes, and how, as specializing in one sport occurs at increasingly younger ages, sports orthopedics is having to evolve to deal with collegiate athlete injuries that were previously only seen in professionals with years of experience. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and let's all hope for an exciting, injury-free Super Bowl game. Finally, if you'd like to submit questions or suggestions for future episodes of the Simul podcast, you can do so at anchor.fm forward slash Simul. Every question you submit increases your chance of winning this month's prize, a $5 Amazon gift card. You can check out any of our previous episodes on Anchor and most major streaming platforms, and you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Simul Podcast. See you next time for the latest episode in our virology series.